salute to Ronald Reagan. Host Haley Barber joins special guest Lady Margaret Thatcher in celebrating the former president's 83rd birthday. Tickets are $1,000 a plate, but you can see the event free on GOP-TV. of hatred and justice all around. Look at that one. Look at that one. You see that one right there, right? But we're going to talk about this one. Y'all. Symbols of injustice and hatred. 
And drugs are always dropped in it. Turn the TV off, man. Don't listen to all that. You a global citizen. You gotta know all the facts. You a global citizen. You gotta know how to act. And ask yourself, what does the American flag mean to Iraq? Symbols of injustice and hatred. Confederate flag. You got to bring it down. Symbols of human enslavement. Confederate You got to bring it down. But what about the red, white, and the blue? American flag. You got to bring it down. Racist blew that flag when they captured you. American flag. And welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today it's Friday, July 5th, 2019. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We are located in the Mission District in San Francisco. We're on a lonely land, and one way folks can give 
back to the land that we're on is if you pay the Shumi land tax. And this goes to folks in the East Bay. However, it's one way uh, to recognize the land we're on. So if you type in Shumi land tax, and that's S-H-U-U-M-I land tax, you'll be taken to the Segurate Land Trust. And <sighs> one way to, to give back. Have a show for everyone today. Have a guest coming in at 12.15. Looking forward to that. Thought we'd start off the show with some appropriate music for this. I, I'm not a fan of holidays in general, especially the recent one that we had yesterday. Lots of fireworks that disturb people and animals, and it's pretty gross. And also someone, I uh, wish I had the name. My memory is, has been going lately. I don't drink anymore. I don't smoke pot anymore. Yet My memory is going. Perhaps it's just witnessing what's happening in the world and not having the room to remember all the specifics. However, uh, someone posted yesterday that flag burning is a lot less noisy than fireworks. So let's keep that in mind for next year. Great. Oh. Uh, so it's Pride Weekend in New York and in San Francisco this past weekend. It's hard to keep track of the days that we are. <laughs> it seems like things are taking a really, uh, there's so much that happens in the day and also so much we're made aware of. And uh, I'll get to what I can. I wrote a list and don't have it with me. But I did want to mention that with for Pride, there are folks who protested at Pride in San Francisco. People protested Pride everywhere and also in San Francisco. And there are activists who decided to stop the parade for 50 minutes in recognition of the 50-year anniversary of Stonewall and protesting police brutality. And I am, as well as the criminalization of homeless folks here in San Francisco, and I wanted to read their list of demands. Uh, folks were assaulted by police. People were arrested. And I wanted just to read the, the list of demands that folks had. Because, unfortunately, there are still some folks within, I guess, the community. We can dissect the word community and what that actually means. However, there are folks who were more upset about the parade being stalled than the, the meaning behind it. Even though recognizing that this was the origin of pride. And I'd imagine for most folks listening, we, we know this. And also there are folks who just are on the wrong side of things and, and not recognizing how the state continues to assault queer folks. And oh, taking a deep breath. So I'm going to do my best to read it here. The, the font isn't too large. However, going to oh here we go this is oops going to bring this up a little bit so we can see it here and i can share it i've also shared it on the weekly review webpage, which might be a better way of folks checking this out and it's going to take just a moment here while i get this all set up So Michael Barba, who is a journalist, uh, tweeted the demands, and you can follow Michael at at A-M-D-B-A-R-B-A. And he shared the, the list from No Pride in Cops or Capitalism, as well as the list of demands. And I'm going to also just read the list of demands here right now for folks. Also, there at Stonewall in New York, there were... Folks were going to have a drag show, and a black trans woman went up to read the names of the of black trans women who have been killed this year. And this made folks uncomfortable, and they, they threatened to call the cops on her. 
so this is something else that just continues to happen and it seems that the I, I don't have the words for it. It's just deeply upsetting that folks don't have a sense of history and continue to go to the state in order to oppress oppress each other. With a lot of sighs this morning, and there's a lot that we're not quite going to get to, but I did want to read the list of demands from the folks who were, were protesting at Pride. And there's also someone named Ashley Richards who tweeted the video footage, uh, just a, a trigger warning that there is violence, police violence, and you can follow Ashley at Ashley, and that's A-S-H-L-E-E -E underscore with an E, as well as uh, Kara Esten uh, at C-A-R-A-E-S-T-E-N. And they also shared, both of them shared the, I believe, the list of demands. List of demands. No police within Pride Parade and no police presence at any Pride celebration, march, or demonstration. The system of policing upholds white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, gender binaries, and capitalist rule. No corporations in Pride. They profit from our communities while simultaneously exploiting, investing, and benefiting from the prison industrial complex, which disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. Celebrate, center, and protect the most marginalized within the LGBTQ to us community, black and brown trans women, and oops, and citywide sweeps of homeless encampments and houseless people during the month of June in the preparation for Pride. This effort to quote unquote clean up the streets for tourists uh, in, in incarcerates excuse me incarcerates and displaces houseless people, many of whom are members of the LGBTQ community. Make Pride accessible for disabled communities, we need more wheelchair space, more seating space, as well as paid volunteers to support accessibility needs, acknowledge the colonization of the land we host pride upon, and acknowledge that San Francisco is the Alamu Ohlone territory. So wanting to share those out there. Also this past week, uh, there have been a lot of protests now that there's been more footage that's been released of the concentration camps in this country and folks have taken to the streets in various cities and here in San Francisco, folks in Palo Alto, Boston, cities across the country and more needs to be done. I did have a good dream uh, last two nights ago that folks were literally dismantling these camps, taking them apart and in some ways infiltrating and taking them apart that way. So perhaps can plant those seeds because it's going to have to be up to us since the folks in positions of power refuse to do much about it. We're going to take a music break and when we come back we are going to have some guests here. So Miss um, Major who is a phenomenal activist and person is currently in the hospital so I wanted just to send our thoughts out to Miss Major and we're going to be playing some music from the documentary Major which I recommend that folks check out uh, Shine Bright with music by Star Amarasu and Storm Miguel Flores. So have some, here's a music break and we'll be back in a bit. Stay tuned. If you the boss, we'll be spamming. Just say what's up. Let your light shine bright. Don't ever give up the right. You chose to be. So why not be free? Let your light shine bright Don't ever give up the fight You chose to be So why not be 
light shine bright. Don't ever give up the fight you chose to be. So why not be free? Let your light shine bright. Don't ever give up the fight you chose to be. So why not be free? Let your light shine bright. Don't ever give up the fight you chose to be. So why not be free?
And welcome back to the Weekly Review. I'm joined here by Joanne Rondalia. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and big thanks to Shirley for introducing us. Yeah, Shirley, we hope you're listening. Yes, <laughs> yes, you, indeed. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, lots lots going on in the yeah. world, certainly. Um, I thought perhaps we could just start if you wanted to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about um, the work you do and what you're interested in. Okay, so um, my name is Joanne Rondilia, and I am an assistant professor at San Jose State University. I teach in, um, the title is called Sociology and Interdisciplinary Social Sciences. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the classes I teach are in Asian American Studies. And in terms of research, my research focuses on colorism mm. um, among Filipinos, uh, mostly in the U.S. And, and as well as in the Philippines. Um, yeah, I guess in a nutshell, that's that's me and my research. I'm originally from a small island called Guam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was born and raised there. And then I moved here to California, uh, Union City, California. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, uh, when I was 13. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what made you decide to go into um, what you teach, like the research aspect of it? Okay, so I, um, I kind of, when I think about my research, it was sort of, I think of it as like part accidental and part um, I am the person that should be doing this, mm -hmm. you know? So there are a couple of things that had happened. One is um, I grew up in a family where skin tone was the thing, you mm. know, like... Um, you know, like when you go to a family party, people people say things about uh, like other people's skin skin tone. You know, or um, I don't know if it's. I think part perhaps it's partly a Filipino thing, but like when you, for me, growing up, going to a family party, like when people greet you, they'll say something about like the way that you look. You know, mm -hmm. so like. In my family, I'm the darkest girl. I'm also like the fattest girl. So there was always a lot of uh, comments about like the way that I look. Mm -hmm. And like when you ask people, you know, um, when you ask, for example, family members, like they're not, they'll say like they're not trying to be insulting. And like it doesn't feel that way when you're, yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> when you're the recipient of those, um, of those observations. So I think. Growing up, I was always um, cognizant of skin tone and beauty, um, you know, so that I think that has always been like on my mind. And then um, when I was in graduate school, I was shopping around for a project because my initial project, uh, it wasn't... I, I'll just say it, it was it was rejected, right? like maybe, perhaps like not flat out rejected, but um, a senior faculty basically said, "Oh, this is not a viable project." Mm. And so, um, and you know, I, I later found out why that was. But oh. um, so yeah, like um, I was told it wasn't a viable project, so I was sort of shopping around, and you know, conversations about colorism kept coming up. Mm -hmm. um, one of my mentors who teaches at UC Santa Barbara, his name is Paul Spicker. Like he would often talk to me about this issue of colorism because he always had students, uh, particularly Filipino students, always talked about, um, you know, being the either the dark one or the light one or, you mm. know, like the something in the family. And they would write papers um, for his class. And so we would talk about that. And um, around the same time, I was also working in cosmetics. Mm. And so like encountering Ooh, <laughs> yeah, that industry. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and encountering different um 
you know, different clients, like, um, you know, in the podcast that you listened to, I, I talked about this woman I met who had like a blue peeling face and I didn't understand why someone would, would sort of do that to themselves. Yes. Yes. So I felt it was just all of these factors like put together kind of led me to researching it. Mm-hmm. Um, Going in, I didn't think it was, I wasn't sure if it was going to be viable again, mm. right? There's the, the question of like, is this something, is this research worthy? Again, and also according to whom, like yes. who's making that decision? Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, and also to like, but I felt that there were so many people who were interested in it. There were so many people who had like a story about, uh, you know, being the whomever in the family mm-hmm. that I thought, well, I think this is, th- this could be it. And so, yeah, I, I just started organically really like the first person I interviewed was my mom. Mm. And then like, um, interviewing my mom gave me these other ideas about how I could turn it into a viable like research, um, research topic. Yeah. I'm curious about like generationally, like what gets passed down and what doesn't. Yes. So the first interview with my mom, I just, I, I was so fascinated by it because, um, I grew up knowing that like my mom and my aunts were like these provincial like beauty queens, mm. right? You know, um, and so, but I later learned because I thought my idea of a beauty queen is like you have to go through the the pageant circuit, you have to go through these these hoops, but like the 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 uh, pageant that like my mom and my aunts were in were actually, you know, they were pageants that were in their town, and the way that women were chosen was um the committee like the organizing committee of that festival basically chooses who the royal courts are Mm -hmm. and so my mom had this funny story where um because her family um in their town was like uh i guess they were like middle class and they also had like um businesses Mm -hmm. they had like a shoe store and so, um, and I know that's so like a Filipino having a shoe, like a shoe store, you know? So, um, I asked her like, how did you become a beauty queen? And, and I found it was such a fascinating story. What happened was, um, that my mom's family thought they were convinced that one of the cousins was going to be the beauty queen. Mm-hmm. But then the committee comes to my grandmother and they tell my grandmother that it's my mom. And my grandmother is just horrified because, you know, like the other family were was dead set on like, oh, our daughter's going to be the queen. And they bought the dress and, you know, like they were expecting their daughter to be the queen. And so my grandmother talked to the committee and they they were like, um, it can't be my daughter. Like it has to be, you know, um, you know, this other girl who's mm-hmm. yeah. And then um, the I guess this committee got angry mm. and they were like, you don't tell us who's going to be the queen. Right. Um, and so my grandmother, again, like wanted to to um she don't want uh like family drama so Mm. basically what they did was uh the queen always wears white Mm. and so my mom's cousin had a white dress and she wore the white dress and my mom wore like this green dress just so that like on the day of like the the parade you can't have a, a a queen in green right you know she has to be in white and so the way my mom explained it was that she shows up in this green dress and the committee is infuriated Hmm. right and like they see her cousin in the white dress and they were like we're not changing 
who we chose. So you're going to be the queen in green. Right. And so you can imagine like, this is humiliating for my mom's cousin, but Mm -hmm. you know, they go through that. And so like, um, I asked my mom, I said, well, what was it mom? Like, why was it so important that, um, you know, like, why was it, why do you think they chose you over your cousin? Mm -hmm. And it was so hilarious. My mom goes, well, because when I was younger, I was so beautiful. (laughs) She goes, I had such white skin. I had a round face and I had, you know, very beautiful tantalizing eyes. Because that's my mom's word, tantalizing. Uh I had beautiful tantalizing eyes. I was Mm. better looking than my cousin. So that's why they chose me. And it was just this very, it was this kind of sweet story. Right. And like, but when she talked about the pageant, right, you know, she, you know, she was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I wore this crown and the crown was um, modeled after the Miss Universe crown. Mm -hmm. Um, Her title um, was Arena Elena. And so like in this tiny story, I saw like this moment in my mom's life was so indicative of of Philippine colonial history, mm-hmm. right? You know, like the way that the queens are um, are chosen. Because my mom, like when the recorder was on, she said, well, I was, you know, I was more beautiful. That's why I was queen. Mm-hmm. But later on, you know, after the interview, she said, you know, it could also have been because we owned businesses in mm. the town. So there's this, this sort of um, that almost capitalist connection, right? You know, like what determined who Mm -hmm. was going to represent beauty for the town. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just that you were chosen for your genuine beauty. Part of it had to do with class, class, right? The wealth, um, you know, Mm. in one's family. Mm. Uh, Reina Elena, you know, the title was a Spanish title, you know, but like the Miss Universe, you know, the crown being... um, you know, being uh, modeled after Miss Universe is also very Western. So there, I felt that there was a lot of interesting ways to, because I was interested in looking at Philippine colonial history, mm-hmm. but I wanted to look at it in a way where it didn't always end in tragedy. Yes. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, um, I wanted a, a critical way to understand how colonial legacies live in the everyday, mm-hmm. right? We, you know, because uh, I wanted a way to, respond to the, to people who say racism is over right colonialism Ugh. is over yeah and like you know at the time you know like working in retail mm. working in cosmetics retail mm-hmm. i knew very well that like the colonialism is in the everyday yes the colonialism is what what allowed me to you know like to pay my bills when um when my university didn't give me funding to Mm. go you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and so it was i thought it was an interesting way to grapple a lot of um interesting topics yes and also like when you're a grad student the you know like there's this understanding that the topic that you choose it's like it's almost like worse than like a marriage partner because like you know like you're gonna be married to this for the rest of your life and you're not even allowed to like divorce this topic you know what I mean? people and, might people might judge you based on your what you choose to do, to study yeah, yeah exactly and like i also knew that i wanted to be the type of academic where i wanted people to relate to what i was studying yeah. i wanted people to if i write an article or a book or something i wanted people to read it because Mm -hmm. I wanted a topic that 
I where I wasn't going to write for 10 other people in the field. Mm-hmm. I wanted to research a topic that a lot of people were going to relate to. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm already thinking of folks I've met who I think will be really interested to, to hear this. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's what it was. A lot of the research that I do um, can't, you know, like and a lot of like a lot of research that I do, a lot of the conclusions that I draw comes from like my everyday life Mm -hmm. and it comes from everyday life and everyday experiences yes yes so it's not um i guess in the academic world sometimes it's like not a good thing because you know ethnic studies scholars are often accused of like this navel gazing right you know like you only study yourself as a I know. Yeah, as opposed to like what's, you know, written in a lot of history books where it's just white, 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 colonialist, Christian, heteronormative, etc. Yes, exactly. So, um, so yeah, like I found, you know, like after, you know, it's funny, it's because it was sort of like after interviewing my mom and really taking a deep dive into like working behind the counter Mm -hmm. and meeting all sorts of women and the types of things that, um, women come to you when you work in cosmetics, right? Um, you know, like I thought that this was viable and it's continued to, to be viable because I, I'm never, I'm never bored mm-hmm. um, with the research. And I think that when you research, when you're married to a topic, yes. right? You know, like you want to make sure that it's, um, it's always, unfortunately, colorism is always timely. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I say, unfortunately, because, you know, I wish it wasn't. Yes. Yeah. You know, I wish um, skin tone didn't matter as much as it as it does. I wish it didn't matter to as many people as it does. Mm -hmm. But the other sort of heartening thing is that it continues to matter. And um, and so, like, I feel like my job and, and the job of other people who do this type of work is to make sure that the conversation is always evolving. Yes. Yeah. Right. That we're not always resorting to the, the, um, the sob story, you know, we're not always looking at like our, ourselves or like the dark skinned family member or friend as like, Oh my gosh, I feel so sorry for you because you must lead this horrible life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, I think that it's important to, to always keep an open mind and also to understand that like not every not every colorism encounter ends in tragedy mm-hmm. you know yeah i was curious about in in academia the, <clears throat> the if you'd like to talk about the pushback you've received and how you've kind of managed to work work past that um so i think initially there wasn't um there wasn't like the huge pushback that i was mm-hmm. anticipating mm-hmm. but i think that um you know like the initial the initial feedback was like oh okay that's interesting hmm. mm-hmm. you know but it wasn't like whoa like you really have yeah. something to say mm-hmm. um, and also too a lot of the feedback that I get is like Filipinos you guys like you're not even dark right like there's there's those types of those conversations as mm-hmm. well and so um, so what I learned to do was like really frame these conversations about colorism um, in relation to colonialism, mm-hmm. right? And because I think that when you do that, like 
you start to understand that it's not just um, it's not just black people, it's not just uh, diasporic um, African people that experience colorism. Mm-hmm. It's anyone who, you know, like any community that has been colonized, which yes. is everybody, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, um, like that's how we can start to open up the conversations about colorism. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah, I had this really um, kind of funny encounter with. Uh, this woman who wrote a book on uh, colorism within families. Mm. um, She interviewed me for her book, and she said, you know, to be honest, um, when I look at you, she goes, I don't know you, but I've seen pictures of you online. She goes, you, you know, she goes, I've, I've heard you describe yourself as the dark person in the family. She goes, but she goes, I'm black, and you were not dark to me. Mm -hmm. You know, and I said, well, I think that's the... The interesting about colorism is that it's so localized, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how we understand who is dark and who is light, it's so intimate. Yes, yeah. You know, so like, um, I may be the darkest woman in my family, but in the world, I'm like, you know, a warm beige, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and that's how, you know, when we look at colorism, this is why it impacts so many people. Yes, yes. Um, so, um, so, yeah, like, I think that as the research started to grow, I um, I just learned how to um, frame the argument so that people would understand, mm-hmm. right? Frame the argument so that people understood that this was important. Yes. Um, and that it was important specifically to look at Filipinos um, because the colonization of the Philippines is so, yeah, right? It, it One, it wasn't just brutal, mm-hmm. right? But it's also forgotten. Mm-hmm. And there there is always this assumption that um, Filipinos are very friendly people. <laughs> and because there's that perception that Filipinos are friendly, that comes with this um, assumption that we welcomed colonization. Um, right you know (laughs) and which is not true right and we see this even today in a lot of the activist movements that continue in the philippines you Mm -hmm. know like today the you know all the activist movements against their you know against duterte and the you know like filipinos have this very strong um history of activism Mm -hmm. and it often gets drowned by these perceptions of like these are friendly people Mm. um these are happy people um you know they're um they have assimilated well like we've assimilated well in the united states but what um one of the things that i appreciated about the project and the research was that it gave me a chance to just to like to fight all of that, right? right? To dispute all of that, yeah, and to also be able to um, make these larger connections and, and critiques of the West mm-hmm. or of like the United States, and mm-hmm. um, but all in the sort of in, in the realm of like colorism and beauty, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it also <clears throat> makes me think about who gets to tell the story and from whose perspective do we get to hear? And that still is something even today, with the, especially with the media. Mm-hmm. A story I didn't quite get to earlier was that, this is side note, there were, so the Proud Boys were like this fascist group in Portland. So, and then there was like this, anyway, this one person, I won't even, anyway, he was antagonizes people and had like a kill list of journalists, et cetera. He got hit with a milkshake. Mm-hmm. Fine. And then they started, the Proud Boys started this like false narrative that there was cement in the milkshakes, even though that was untrue, and that he had a brain brain hemorrhage, also untrue. And then the media kind of, and the cops, of course, who are friends with the Proud Boys, took up this narrative and then 
by the end of the day, the media is spouting this false narrative, and then folks are now threatening anti-fascists who are defending themselves, of course. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it just makes me think about who gets to tell the stories and who's questioned, who's not, and then how the general public or folks who might not be aware of what the actual truth is then gets to hear these these false narratives and then that frames their like i think the i learned recently the the term mental framing i guess mm. where it's how yeah it's how folks understand what's happening and then it changes people's behavior yeah absolutely because i also think it's very important for like within the that the stories and the research comes from within the community because right, you, right. yeah because you provide something that no one else can. So I'm not the first person to ever do research on Filipino women and colorism. There's mm-hmm. another scholar uh, out of Michigan who mm-hmm. does this. And and I have all of his work, and I think that he makes some really interesting observations. Mm-hmm. And um, in a lot of his work, like, he, um, like he'll dedicate a chapter to... Um, you know, the interviews, the interviews that he conducted. And, mm-hmm. um, and again, like, I, I definitely commend the work, but he's also like this, he's a black male, mm-hmm. you know, from the United States, and he's talking to Fili- to Filipino women. And, you know, like, when I would read some of the transcripts in his book, I would think these are, this is great material, but I also felt like this is also very sterile, right? Um, and, and, and of course, like, you know, being, you know, as a Filipina, you know, like, um, knowing how people talk, mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, um, a lot of the responses, at least the published responses were very polite. Mm-hmm. And so, because like, if you put like my transcripts next to his, like you get very different narratives, mm-hmm. um, you know, and part of it is because they're, it, it has to do with like what people, especially when you're conducting interviews for research, it, it has to do with what people will share with you. Yes. Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, like when I read his, again, like not knocking the research, I think he's a very good researcher, but um, who you are as a researcher is going to impact how like um, a person is going to respond to your questions. Mm-hmm. So I definitely noticed that um, when I did the dissertation, like the last chapter was, um, you know, I, I outlined a couple of things that, um, a couple of areas of research that I wanted to see developed. Mm-hmm. And I, cause I felt it was important to, for people to see that there is this life of colorism, um, that extends way beyond me. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I had mentioned was like the growing, like these growing concerns about colorism and beauty standards among men, mm. um, um, among, um, you know, like, is there a correlation between like colorism and, uh, sexuality? Mm. Is there, are there issues of colorism in the trans community? <sighs> you know, like, yep. yeah, yeah. As a queer person, I mean, that's one of the many isms that queer folks still deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that these are very um <clears throat> these are very important questions and important topics to research, but you know, me as like a cisgender female, you know, as um you know, as a straight woman, um I can definitely try to do this type of research, but to me there's an there's a vision of like what this research can and should be. Mm-hmm. And I know for a fact, like, I'm not the person to be at the center of development. I can, like, mentor someone to to do that research. And mm-hmm. so that's why, for me, it was important to talk about that. Like, there's so many ways to look at 
um, how we understand beauty and its relationship to colonialism. Yes. Um, and <clears throat> I have like a set of answers, but there are a lot of people in the world who um, can contribute as much, if not more, and um, it, it just needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, I was curious if you uh, might be able to share some of what you've learned from your students, because I've heard that a lot from folks who teach, that they're oftentimes students have different perspectives. So mm -hmm. I thought maybe if there's any anything that you've learned over the years from your students you'd like to share. Yeah, so the things I learned from my students um, are plenty. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, it really, especially in the last like five years or so, it really has to do with... Um, the power of social media, mm. you know, mm -hmm. um, because I still have a hard time kind of navigating social media, but yeah. like, you know, and also like my sense of like activism is very different than how um, students sort of frame their sense of activism. Mm -hmm. My sense of communication is very different than how they, you know, like how they articulate themselves. And a lot of that I think has to do with, um, with social media, mm -hmm. right? Um, Cause I'll be honest, like when it comes to like research, I'm a bit of a stick in the mud and all of my students will tell you this, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm all about like, you know, the citations and you know, whatever, whatever. Um, and you know, like they, again, it's because they came of age in a different type of like education system. They're mm -hmm. not like as, as much, they're not sticklers the way that I am. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things I've learned, especially in like putting a class together is that students really respond to things, um, on social media, like mm -hmm. the short, like I don't just do straight lectures. I always have to interject like the small, these little like short videos, like AJ plus videos or something like mm -hmm. that, just because like, um, I literally think their brains work differently. So they they has to be stimulated in all these different ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, I may complain that they don't read, right? but I do think of the many things I've learned is that they do read, but they just read differently than I do. Mm. So what I've learned as, uh, as a professor is that of course you want to give like the basic book journal reading, but if you supplement that with like a graphic novel, like they're actually very adept in reading the art mm -hmm. in reading the visual, um, so yeah, like because I'm I'm new at San Jose State, I've been trying to figure out like interesting ways to conduct uh, to conduct a class. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I'm going to try out this year is like um, when uh, I teach a class on Asian American um, Asian American studies in in the spring, but it's more like contemporary. And there's a film called Who Killed Vincent Chin. Um, have you seen it? I haven't seen it. it. Sounds really familiar, though. Do you mind okay. speaking a little bit about that? So, Who Killed Vincent Chin is a documentary about the murder of Vincent Chin, and this was in um, the early 1980s, where um, a guy basically um, bludgeoned him to death with a bat. Mm -hmm. um, Vincent Chin is Chinese American, and this was around the time um, when a lot of auto workers, white auto workers, were losing their jobs because mm -hmm. of um, Japanese automation. And so um, this guy, um, Ron Ebens, um, basically killed Vincent Chin. Um, and uh, it was Vincent Chin's um, mm. bachelor party. Mm. And so um, they got into a scuffle at a strip club. And um, Ebens basically said it was because of you motherfuckers that were out of a job. And so this that ensued the literal hunt 
of Vincent Shin and his eventual uh, murder. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a really important case, especially for Asian Americans, because it's it's it was the one case, especially like given the time, the early 1980s, where you saw this mass mobilization of Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. So if you look at a lot of um, a lot of um, Asian American activist organizations today, a lot of Chinese Americans activist associations today, a lot of them actually were built because of the Vincent Chin case. Hmm. Um, and I think to me, this story, because I was very inspired by, um, have you seen When They See Us? Yes, yes. Phenomenal, phenomenal yeah. series, yeah. right? And I, you know, um, my poor husband, like, I, I didn't even prepare him, you know, like, I was just watching it one Saturday morning, and he came in, and he started watching it, and then when we were done with the series, he was like, oh my god, I can't believe you didn't even prepare me, right, like, so we were so down, but then there was a part of me that was so inspired by When They See Us, because I was like, so I know I'm not the person to do this, but I do think someone... Um, needs to um, do something similar with the Vincent Chin story. Mm-hmm. Because like along with the murder case, we see, you know, um, the growth of his mother, mm-hmm. right? Like she, her story is always someone that, or she was always someone that um, really touched me mm-hmm. uh, in that documentary, Who Killed Vincent Chin? And then uh, uh, later on, <clears throat> I think, um, uh, I think this, other documentaries about 10 years old now um there's an, a shorter documentary called vincent who and it's like when you see the story of vincent's mom here's this like chinese immigrant woman very very quiet mm-hmm. but like that when you see the footage of her like you can see her reliving the pain over and over again because you know she never got to see justice for her son because mm-hmm. um even's basically um he didn't get any jail time. He paid $3,000. And then, you know, and even till now, like, um, someone um, someone had interviewed him uh, probably in the last, like, five years. And he still kind of plays the victim and says, you know, like, um, you know, all of that, like, ruined my life. And, and like, there's this sense of, like, well, you've got to live a life, yeah. right? You know, because with the Vincent Shin story, like, it was his bachelor party. So all of those guests that were coming into Michigan expecting to attend a wedding ended up attending a funeral, mm-hmm. you know? So it's just, like, it's Ugh. so, it, you know, so, like, I feel like, especially now with some of the conversations about automation and how automation is changing uh, the economics of the country, mm-hmm. you know, like what that does is, of course, it's going to increase unemployment, mm-hmm. especially in like, um, you know, the middle states, right? You know, like the, the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like what happened um, in the Vincent Shin case, when there is... Um, instability like employment instability the sad reality is people of color die Mm -hmm. right and that's what we see in the vincent chin case and so that's why i feel like you know for those of you who are listening and your writers screenwriters like this i think i think this case would be an excellent um film or series to bring up again because it's timely but it's also like an important thing to look at in the historic moment that we are in right now so yes yeah yeah it, i mean it also makes me think about class and how when class isn't taught and people don't 
think about it instead of blaming people instead of blaming the bosses and the people who control the means of production people end up scapegoating and harming other folks yeah absolutely because that's that's exactly the history of asians in the country right like you know every racialized group i you know i think that there's there are certain um it's almost like there's certain uh, descriptors, like that one word descriptor that can describe um, the colonization or the subjugation of like certain racialized groups. Mm-hmm. So when we think of um, African-American history, we think slavery. When we think Native Americans, we think genocide. When we think Asian, if if you think of Asian-Americans, the, the sort of buzzword is not model minority. The buzzword is exclusion, mm. right? Because Asian-American, um, the Chinese, for example, the Chinese Exclusion Act, this is the first time a, a, a racial and eth- or ethnic group is is named mm-hmm. in an exclusionary law and those exclusionary laws have not ended mm-hmm. you know we look at the muslim ban like mm-hmm. you know the muslim ban happened because of the the uh, the chinese exclusion law mm-hmm. right so like i think that um you know i think that the media becomes an important way both media and education yes yes but not every kid in the country um is lucky enough to take like an Asian American studies class or, um, you know, is able to see that in their books. Yes. So that's, yeah, that's why I think media is important. Definitely. And then the parallels too, with like where, where the, where immigrants are being kept in terms of like the camps that are still there. Yes, absolutely. Cause like, um, I appreciate a lot of the, the coverage, um, you know, the coverage that is, uh, that we see. Um, but, my frustration is the lack of like historicizing, mm-hmm. right? What is happening today? You know, like there's a lot of not in my country. This is not my country. Like what country have you been living in? Yeah. It's like, yeah. no, this, this is actually this is American history. This, this is our country. Yes. Right. Um, and it's always been our country. Yes. And I think that, you know, we have to come to a point where we actually understand that and frame that and guide that, um, you know, so that we can, you know, like people, there's always this desire to do better, mm-hmm. but you can't do better in the future if you actually have no idea what happened in the past. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause like when I think about something like what's happening in the border, it's very much related to the research that I do on colorism because mm-hmm. so much about colorism, right. You know, the, um, <clears throat> the, the discriminatory research, uh, discriminatory treatment of someone based on skin tone. So much of, of, of that has to do with these notions of civility and savagery. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like people seem to be surprised at what's happening at the border. But when you have a president who sees these young children not as people, mm-hmm. this is what happens. Yeah. You know, so and like I think, you know, every person in the country has like um it's like you have a personal investment. You have a personal responsibility to speak out a, about what is to speak out against what's happening in the border, mm-hmm. right? Because unless you're Native American, we we have no we have no right to uh, to judge a family for wanting to come over. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Cause oh like, yeah, yeah. Because I think about my own family and the circumstances that allowed us to be here. Mm-hmm. We weren't that far away from, you know, a family trying to cross a border. Yeah, you know, it's just a different historical circumstance that made it so that we, you know, like my family and I were able to come. You know, my parents were able to come without having to be caged. Mm-hmm. But all it takes is a different 
a different moment for my parents to experience that. So. Right, right. And then also, who's to say who created the border in the first place? Yes. And where were those borders? <clears throat> yes. Years ago. Yeah, exactly. Because like, you know, for, um, you know, in, in the classroom, because, you know, I do, you know, like every classroom has that student who, uh, that person who um, pulls out the the legality card, right? Mm. You know, like. Ugh. You know? <laughs> I, I appreciate, I mean, I've, I appreciate teachers, like folks who go into this profession, because I feel like I would get so <laughs> maybe unprofessional or upset at the kind of whataboutism. Yeah, you know, it's like that, there's yeah. always someone who's going to pull the legality card. But, mm-hmm. you know, the but legality is, it's not, it's not an issue of like morality. It's an issue of power, mm-hmm. right? You know, because um, no one ever, no, like the pilgrims weren't legal. Right? Nope. You know, like European immigrants weren't legal, right? Like they declared that they were legal, mm-hmm. but they, you know what I mean? Like, but they, but they technically weren't. Right. You know, so, um, and also too, like, I, I always ask my students, you know, when you think about how. I, I run an exercise where I have them write down, like, who's the person that made it possible for you to get here? Mm. And the only person who, who can't really participate in the exercise is someone who's Native American, mm. right? But otherwise, everybody else, who's the person that got you here, mm-hmm. right? Who got you or your family here? And, and some people are going to have to dig back, mm-hmm. you know, generations. Some people are just going to dig back, like, one generation. Yeah. You know, and because I think it's important for them to understand that, like, you know, they have, you know, the, the circumstance. So who is that person? What is the circumstance that brought them here? Mm-hmm. Right. And then because we forget that it is a human thing to uh, migrate right. somewhere. Yeah. Right. And then as they start digging, especially in the context of Asian American studies, Asians are here in the U.S. Because, you know, Pacific Islanders are here in the U.S. because of U.S. intervention. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if yeah. the, you know, if, if Spain never came, if the United States, uh, if the United States were never in the Philippines, my family would have no reason to mm-hmm. leave the Philippines. It's a beautiful nation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it's a beautiful culture, beautiful people, you know, like beautiful customs, you know, like, um, but there was something very heartbreaking. Like when I went overseas doing my research, I remember feeling like it, this overwhelming sense of sadness Mm -hmm. because there are so many things that I could see are so incredible, right? So beautiful. And people there are so conditioned to see life as like, as not having value or like, mm. you know, seeing like, or, or so many people are being, con- are, are conditioned to, to leave or want to leave that mm-hmm. they don't see like the intrinsic value that they have. Right. And I said, so something as simple as when you go and get a soda in the Philippines, you go to a corner store and, um, because, um, and it's not like, because they're trying to be green, it's, it's an issue of like poverty. Mm-hmm. You, you take, you choose your, your bottle of soda and what mm-hmm. they'll do is like, they'll open the bottle and put the soda in a bag or, you know, in some type of container, put a straw on it and then you go on your way. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> and I was so fascinated yeah. by this because yeah. right? I hadn't seen it in, in such a long time. Yeah. And I was talking to my friends, I said, you know, I could bring that to the United States and I'd make a killing because I would be seen as someone who's an innovator and who's green. Mm-hmm. And then my friends go, that's not innovation. That's just, she goes, we do that cause we're poor. Mm-hmm. And I said, but yeah, I can steal that idea mm-hmm. and call myself an innovator. Mm-hmm. And this is where it's frustrating. Like innovation here in the Philippines is so natural. Yes. Yes. Right. But 
you're but you know like people here don't see it as like natural innovation they see it as a condition of poverty mm-hmm. versus you can take that same di- dynamic right opening up a corner store where people bring in their own bottles you know what i mean and i and i'd be seen as like oh my god right you know this you know this entrepreneurial like you know innovator um and so that that you know like there's there's a sadness there and that also frames why people come here Mm -hmm. right like when you we sell the american dream and then we demonize people who buy it yeah um yeah and it's just it's the the stuff that's happening in the board is just very sad but it's but people need to understand that this is also like a global thing mm-hmm. you know and and anyone any one of us can be that kid in a cage mm-hmm. so there are things that we have to do to ensure that um it's it stops yes. right and sadly a lot of that has to do with like education yes. like yeah read learn facts understand yeah, talk like, to people yeah talk to people understand you know the way that the media operates and, yeah yeah sorry that was so far off. oh no it's all it's all important <laughs> and something else you, you mentioned in terms of like uh u.s uh interventional yeah intervening i mean of course from folks from central america for instance yes. like why are folks migrating in the first place and then it's if you go back to history yeah and it's like oh the u.s went and you know overthrew certain democratically elected leaders and yes. then it, or and or installed their own folks or people who supported mm-hmm. the u.s machine and then folks don't really have a choice yeah exactly and then also people imagine this border crossing as like i'm gonna swim and then i'm gonna like you know jog through the desert like i imagine i think it's because i think about like my own family Mm -hmm. i think about because especially and this was so salient when i visited my my dad's family in the philippines when i was doing the research like i understand he grew up poor and i could see that Mm -hmm. but he was also surrounded by a lot of family and mm-hmm. a lot of love, mm-hmm. right? And um, and so I can imagine, like, something economically must be so off where, you know, like, leaving all of this, everything that you know. Yes. You know, like, this is not an easy decision. Yes, And, you yes. know, when we think about people who are crossing that border like i mean i lived in arizona for five years like the desert is brutal Mm -hmm. right like you you go in knowing that like you may not come out alive if you're a woman you go in knowing that like um you're probably going to be assaulted and these are the these are the hard decisions that you make because you there's a life, a greater life that you're aspiring to, and mm-hmm. you've decided that that's important. And these are the, this is the human framing that needs, that I think needs to be articulated more. Mm-hmm. These are difficult decisions that people are making. Yes. And then once they come over, like the wretched, you know, the wretched, like separation of families, yeah. you know, the, the brutal things that the, the kids, you know, these children are, are experiencing the brutal things that, cause I feel like the coverage that we're seeing now, especially of like the, the concentration camps at the border, mm-hmm. this is the stuff we're allowed to see. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. This like, is what I think it was like Joaquin Castro who snuck a, a camera <clears throat> in to take those photos. Yeah. yeah. These are the yeah. things that we're allowed to see. And he got that footage mm-hmm. when, when those workers knew exactly who he was mm-hmm. Imagine what this looks like when this is not 
when, when there are no is, witnesses. Yeah, when there are no yeah. witnesses or when it's someone who's not like a Joaquin Castro. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a very it's very frustrating. And again, like going back to to this things that I do, a lot of this has to do a lot of ethnic studies I think has to do with um and, and it's it's very frustrating. It's fighting for humanity, mm-hmm. fighting for um you know, fighting for uh, the right to see certain people as bona fide human beings. Yeah. Right. Which one would think it shouldn't be that. It's like the fact that we're still even talking about it is yeah. just such a. Uh, yeah, I am at, I'm at a loss for words a lot of the time. Yeah. When yeah. It's like it, how. Yeah. That. Yeah. I, I don't have the words for it. It's yeah. just beyond me. Yeah. Well, cause I'm thinking about like the, the previous segment when you were talking about like the murder of, of, of trans women. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, again, a lot of this has to do with like, you know, people who do this, mm-hmm. right. You know, the beastly people who do this, they do this because they don't have the capacity to see the humanity in, in another person. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, a lot of the research um, that I think comes out of uh, ethnic studies, the research that I do, um, you know, when we're when we're trying to frame and understand colorism, because, you know, like I, I think a lot of what I heard in the beginning was like, you know, beauty is flavor uh, is is uh, beauty is, is flagrant. Right. It's 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 uh, beauty is not important, but beauty is a sign of civility, mm. right? Beauty is, is framed as, as civility, yeah. you know? And so if you're not seen as conventionally beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in various spaces, cause the colorism is, is about like these perceptions of beauty, usually within intimate spaces, mm-hmm. right? Cause a lot of the stories that I would hear about, um, interviewees would talk about like being the darkest in the family. Mm-hmm. And when asked, you know, like, how do you know this? How do you know you're the darkest in the family other mm-hmm. than like the visual, right? Mm-hmm. And and most interviewees would say because of the way that I was treated. Mm. Right? You know, and it wasn't just it wasn't that a stranger or a teacher treated, it was my grandma treated me this way, my mm. uncle treated me this way, my mom treated me this way. And like when we look at um these issues of colorism, right? This discrimination you know, the skin tone based discrimination, um, oftentimes like those discriminations happen within intimate circles, right. Mm-hmm. Within these circles of unconditional love. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, if these are the messages that are circulating within these, uh, spaces of unconditional love, imagine what, what that feels like, um, when you're outside of those circles. Yes. Right. And so much of it has to do with like, um, Again, like this, this fight for humanity. Mm-hmm. I think also too, um, one of the things that, that I, uh, that I always point out in the research is like, <clears throat> I think here in the U S a lot of like my friends here in the U S of various backgrounds sort of look at colorism, especially in Asia. And they think, my gosh, these people are crazy. You know, like why would light skinned people want to be even lighter? Right. So, you know, and there's a lot of reasons why usually issues of civility and humanity it has to do with the class. It mm-hmm. has to do with, um, you know, economic opportunity, mm-hmm. but also we're not far removed. Right. So one of the things that I did in the research was and <clears throat> this was a product of um, working in the industry. Um, 
when you go to a place like the Philippines and you go into a department store or like a, even a grocery store and you look at the cosmetics products, everything is some type of skin lightener, Mm. right? Um, Because that's just what the cosmetics industry is. Mm -hmm. But when you go into like a grocery store, it's Target and Ulta or Sephora or something. Mm -hmm. All the skincare products here are anti-aging products, Mm. right? Mm. But if you look at transnational companies, the same exact products in the U.S. that are anti-aging products are the same, you know, skin lightening products in the Philippines, mm. right? So there's a much broader conversation about like, again, like humanity, beauty, mm. yeah. right? Um, notions of like acceptability. Yes. So when uh, when people here go, oh my gosh, those women in, in Asia are crazy. It's like, no, they're not because they're as crazy as you are mm-hmm. and, and your, yeah. your need to buy like anti-aging yeah. products. There's I mean, so much ageism here too. Yeah. I mean, something that's been in the back of my mind throughout mm-hmm. this conversation has been like through media representation through Hollywood in terms of who gets mm-hmm. hired for which roles yeah. and how that gets played out with, you know, <clears throat> racism in that as well as ageism. Yeah. Because so much of like when we're looking at the, you know, like um, either media or like in these beauty spaces so much of how we understand beauty has to do with like you're beautiful because you have defied the odds right so like here in the u.s when we see um a woman who is aging and we think wow she's beautiful a lot of it has to do with she's 60 years old but doesn't look a day over 40 right Mm -hmm. you know it's like we see that as accomplishment because she's basically she passes as something is who she's not Mm. right that also just bring like a light bulb just I mean it's bringing up a lot of different ideas but in terms of with the trans community that idea of of passing and of course that also other communities as well have that as well where that idea of something that cis folks sometimes tell trans folks is like they think of it as a compliment but they'll say oh I couldn't tell as if that's somehow supposed to be a compliment when it's not yeah it's not because the idea is that like at the end of the day especially I, I think of like um you know for a trans person there was so much work to you know like to the transition and Mm. then there's still the continuous work and for someone to say like oh you have successfully transitioned because i can't even tell Mm -hmm. you know you know it's like you pass as someone as i don't expect you to be yes right and that's really that's also what you know like what happens in these beauty spaces Mm -hmm. right you know um you know, like in, in terms of like Filipino women and like skin lightening, so much of like beauty, you know, these beauty standards are like, oh, you are so beautiful because when I look at you, I can't even tell that you're Filipino because that was one of the striking things. <clears throat> that was one of the striking things um, that I learned, um, you know, because I one of the questions I had was um, in your family or among your circle of friends who is the person or who are the people that sort of embody beauty, Mm -hmm. right? Like who is the person that like you think of when you think of like, Oh, this person is beautiful. Um, and oftentimes, and this was in interviews both here in the U S as well as, um, in the Philippines, it was always like a mixed race cousin or a mixed race, like a family member. Mm -hmm. And, um, there was one quote, uh, from, this woman, I, I distinctly remember, um, because she is, uh, she was like a, st- she's a stylist and she does a lot of work with her sister who's a model. And this was in the Philippines. 
And, um, and I said, you know, like, what is it about your sister? Like, why do you think she's a, a successful model here? And she goes, oh, that's easy. She goes, she's the Filipino who doesn't look Filipino. Mm. You know, she's the Filipino that like, no one can tell she's Filipino, but she's very proudly Filipino, but no one can tell. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, for advertisers, that's what they want. Mm. They want to be able to say like, you know, it's like she is you know, visually she, she fits the standard of beauty that they're looking to represent their brand. Right. Um, but the big plus is she can also say that she's Filipino because she is. Mm -hmm. And, um, advertisers can say, well, see, we're welcoming, we're diverse. Right. But there's no, there's no questioning of like, okay, like, what does that, what does it mean? You know, because here she is, she's very light. She has light hair, light eyes, like, you know, um, there's no questioning. Right. And then, so when this woman goes and like advertises, she becomes the embodiment of beauty for many Filipino women. And if you've gone to the Philippines, you'll know, like there are a lot of women who are light, but there's more women who are like dark Mm -hmm. and don't have dark hair, you know, who don't have like the light hair, the light skin, the light eyes. And because this model is Filipino, she becomes this aspirational thing as Mm -hmm. if it would be possible Mm -hmm. for like a darker skinned, like more indigenous looking woman, Woman to look like a white passing person, mm. right? So again, like a lot of how we understand beauty is about like um, you you meeting or exceeding the expectations of someone else's standards, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah, that's definitely a big theme too. Is like other people's standards. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like you know, and because like I don't want to. I don't want to be suspicious of people who say like, you know, I love myself. I, you know, it's like, cause I, I definitely, I see that, right. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are a lot of people who find empowerment in that, but I think that we have to remember that these relationships that we have to ourselves and in relation to beauty, these are ongoing conversations. Mm-hmm. Cause I see it in my own self. I have days where I'm like, yeah, screw the world. Like I am hot today. And there are days where I'm just like, I just, I'm not feeling, you know. Oh and, yeah, yeah. I can definitely relate. I have a lot of those days. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. And and a lot of it has to do with like how we understand, you know, what's beautiful, mm-hmm. right, or what's acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I grew up in a house where, like, um, so my mom, it's my mom and my aunts, they will never step out of the house without hair done, makeup done, like mm-hmm. not even to get the mail, right? Like, you know, because that's just what they grew up with, mm-hmm. you know? And, and again, it has to do with like, they grew up in a time and in a culture where it's like public presentation, like you had to, you had to present yourself, mm-hmm. you know? So like for my sister and I, we had a hard time growing up because, mm-hmm. you know, we grew up on Guam and, you know, we came here to California and like everything is just a lot more relaxed you know and and like to always be told like you shouldn't go out of the house or you can't meet people unless you like mm-hmm. you know what I mean um and it's not that like the people in our family are telling us that we're ugly but man when you're the recipient of that yes yeah you can't help but but feel that yeah right you know so like I feel like a lot of a lot of beauty empowerment ha- it really comes down to like like who are you doing this for mm-hmm. and what is this for right yeah um so yeah, I feel like this is, it's kind of all over the place, but you know. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, I mean, a lot of themes there too. And I think about like misogyny too, where there's that yes. pressure on women and femmes to have to look a certain way. Yes. In Ex- addition to. Yes, others. exactly. Yeah. Cause like the men in my family, I don't remember. I mean, they did, 
you know, like I remember my brother and my cousin sort of getting the comments about like, don't stay out in the sun, you know, you're going to get too dark. But mm. like, it wasn't, it wasn't as prevalent as like the women in the family. Mm. Right? Like that pressure, I think was just a lot greater for the women than men. I do, th- I, I will say, cause when I was conducting interviews, there were a lot of like, uh, you know, friends, you know, partners who were like, why aren't you in, you know, interviewing men? And it's like, I get it, especially like at the time when I was working in the industry, there was, and there continues to be, if we look at the numbers of like the numbers of, um, companies that cater to men's grooming products, like Mm. the, you know, it has increased quite a bit in the (laughs) last 20 years, you know, so there is this increasing demand for like men's beauty products, but I still think that overall, these beauty standards are imposed on women a lot more than men. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <sighs> I know. <laughs> um, I thought perhaps we could take a bit of a break. Okay. If that sounds good to you. I heard a rumor that you were a fan of Duran Duran. Is that true? I love Duran Duran. <laughs> I, um, I know a few of their singles. However, if there's any songs of theirs that you would like to request at this moment, perhaps ones that... I mean, I know like the basics, Hungry mm-hmm. Like the Wolf, Rio, The Reflex, etc. The View to a Kill, is that oh one of them? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, however, I feel like that they probably have a, a, a very a wider canon of, of yes, music. So if yes. there's anything that you'd like to request, I'd be happy to play um, that. Let's, do you have um, Ordinary World? Oh, I know that one. Yeah, let's see if we can bring that up right now. Um, I remember that. Yeah. That, was that one that came out like in the 90s maybe? Yeah, yeah. When they had like a, a bit of a comeback? The, yeah, it's like the wedding album, the informally called wedding album. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll play this and we'll be back in a bit. Stay Thank tuned. Thank you.
back to the weekly review joined here with uh joanne wandelia thank you for being here thank you for having me and also appreciate the duran duran reminder i hadn't i'd forgotten about that song for a minute but i do remember when that came out yeah yeah no because like i was always a duran duran fan and then there was like this slump and so i was seen as like the not cool kid and then when they made their little comeback i was like see i told you yeah (laughs) oh i know (laughs) It's a nice bit of a, a palate cleanser, too. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Lots of important things to talk about. And also just good to remember that there's really good music out there yeah. and artists creating <sighs> creating work. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to, um, I definitely commend artists for, like, for the work that they do. So, like, there's a... There's this Filipino-American rap artist who I really... I've I've been listening to her music lately, um, Ruby Ibarra. Okay. And, like, she, in a lot of her raps, like, talks about colorism. So, yeah, like, um, as I'm trying to to work on, uh, you know, like, work on some academic writing, you know, like, I, I do like to see, you know, what are some of the kind of pop culture conversations and, like... I'm fascinated by her as an artist because she raps in English and Tagalog. Okay. And, um, you know, she's from the Bay Area, from the East Bay, San Leandro. So it's nice that she's like a local, you know, a local artist. But she's also gotten some good um, national press. Like, I think she was, uh, I want to say like a year ago, she uh, was on like a major uh, advertisement for Visa because she's a hip hop artist. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, her album is great because... You know, she talks about being an immigrant and um, a lot of it has to do with like uh, there's a couple of songs where she makes references to uh, to colorism. Mm. And, you know, like as an immigrant, how, you know, there is this sort of whitewashing expectation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's also this uh, this sadness in having to do that, you know, because. You know, you're as as a Filipino. Like I, I'm not an immigrant. You know, I um, <clears throat> or technically, I'm not an immigrant. I'm from Guam. But when we moved here, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1989, I remember like being treated like a foreigner. Mm. I mean, even when I was applying to graduate school, I forget what school it was, but they sent me this packet 
on directions. Uh, it was a direction packet on how to take the TOEFL test. Uh, and for those of you who don't what's, know, yeah, what's yeah the TOEFL test is basically like if you come from a foreign country mm-hmm. and you are applying to graduate school, you have to show that you're proficient in English. And huh. in order to do that, you have to take something called the TOEFL test. It's sort of like a like an SAT test. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really strange because like, unfortunately, I only know English, right? Mm-hmm. And like, and I realized a lot of the reason why I was getting these packets to take the TOEFL test is because... You know, here are like American educational institutions who look at my transcript and they see like, okay, born, born on Guam and they're not educated enough to know that Guam is a territory and people on Guam are U.S. citizens. And so, you know, we get to travel to the U.S., you know, and everywhere else in the world with blue passports. You know, I think that I feel like. The nation remembers that Guam is a U.S. territory and that we're U.S. citizens when they need to recruit, when they need to, like, recruit people to join the military. That's mm. when people remember. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when people remember that we're U.S. citizens. But otherwise, yeah, you're, be... yeah, you're a total foreigner. Yeah, I feel like with the military, it's like, oh, we're that's like the one place where, oh, we've got to have a lot of people to... Yeah, I mean, it's also reminds me a lot of I'm thinking just like different connections here um, with Pride Month when corporations put like rainbows yes. in their logo, and then afterwards it's done, and they don't really, for the most part, they don't hire queer and trans folks. They don't like they oftentimes donate to anti-gay Republicans or other yes. other um, politicians. Yeah, and they might not offer folks like adequate health care, and so it's just kind of like all in. It's like a lot of lip service. Yeah. And the only times that you see, you know, uh, corporations stand up is, I, I feel like it's, you know, especially for queer and trans folks, like I feel like when we see corporations stand up for, for their employees that way, it really has to do with um, they're trying to like make themselves look good. Yep. Right. You know, because, um, yeah, I was in Arizona when they had that, um, they were trying to put forth that legislation where you could legally discriminate against um, LGBTQ uh, clients, Mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, like what pushed the governor at the time to not, you know, go forward with the legislation was the NFL basically threatened to back out. Mm -hmm. You know, all these corporations did that. And Mm -hmm. I thought that that was great. But unfortunately, like that becomes the language of um, of equality these days, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not, um, you know, like in, in Arizona, it wasn't like a moral good. It was that you were trying to maintain these businesses. Yes. Yeah. You know, and then, and it's great that the businesses stood up, but at the same time, like a part of me wonders, like, you know, are these businesses actively employing, mm-hmm. um, you know, the LGBTQ community? Right. You know, are they, um, ensuring protections for um, for their employees who are of that community, you know. Yes. So it's, yeah. Um, and it just, I just remember um, when I was there, like it seemed to be, if there was any type of civil rights, something or other, if you just um, involved the corporations, like it became like this easy fix. Mm-hmm. But then. The easy fix didn't go. It, it was like it didn't go beyond that. Yes, you know. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, in in that regard. But 
Yeah. Yeah. Something else that you mentioned um, that keeps popping up in my mind is that in terms of with American history is just that mm-hmm. there's not the, it's difficult to address these things because there is that denial of what's happened. Yeah. Like there haven't been reparations mm-hmm. for like for black folks in this country and yeah. there hasn't been reparations for native Americans. Yeah. And so in terms of how do we get to, how do we get posts call? How do we get post this? Yeah. If we can't, it just seems like, yeah, I feel like it's there. There are certain answers. I think there are some like easy things that need to be done, but then there's also the hard lines, that, the hard line things that need to be done. Mm-hmm. So like, um, it's funny cause my husband and I talk about this issue of reparations mm-hmm. and, and my, my concern is that the conversation about reparations sort of starts and stops with a single check, kind of, uh, kind of like Japanese American reparations mm. during World War II, mm-hmm. you know, because like when we're looking at, because I, so let's look at, at that, you know, issue first, Japanese American reparations. It was great, you know, in that you know people were given, um, you know, uh, some type of uh, some type of reparations at twenty thousand dollars. But when you really look at it, was that, you know, that didn't that didn't solve the silence that didn't solve the, you know, the, um, the hurt, right? right. That didn't, you know, it didn't make, it, it wasn't the end all be all. Right, right. Right. You know, but it gave the government an excuse to say, look, we said, sorry, we gave a check. Hands yeah. clean. Right. Yeah. And so as we're talking, as we, you know, move forward in these, these discussions about reparations, um, especially for, um, you know, black folks here in the U.S. for Native folks, it can't be a singular check. Right. Reparations has to come in the form of like systematic changes. Right, right. You know, like we have to invest in education so that we teach American history properly. Mm-hmm. You know, that we ensure that you know, like kids K through twelve are not afraid of uh, of understanding that there are a lot of awful horrific things that happened. Yes. Right. You know, like there's such this, this fear of that, but you know, like if you, I've learned that if you, if you teach kids, you know, the, the honest truth about the foundation of of the country, they have a better sense of like how to navigate themselves. Mm -hmm. They have a better sense of like how to, how to really genuinely create the country that they want to live in. Yes. You know, um, and you know, like a lot of that has to do with like, um, cause I, I notice like sometimes, uh, when students talk about like being fascinated, you know, like when they took their first ethnic studies or Asian American studies, they're so, you know, like they're so empowered, but there's, there are some students who are like, but I don't know if I could have learned this as a kid. Cause I'd be angry all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it's like, but I think it's a challenge for us as a nation to like, okay, if you have this angry kid because he, he or she, or they are armed with this knowledge, we have to adjust, mm-hmm. right? We have to adjust and know how to, you know, again, be mindful uh, about uh, kids who have this knowledge. Yes, and how to transfer that anger into action. Yes, how to transfer that anger into action, yeah. right? And also, too, because, like, I mean, of course, as, as an educator, to me, knowledge is power, right. right? Like, the more you, you know, the more knowledge you have. I, I think of, like, when we share knowledge, we're empowering people to make different choices about their lives, right? Mm -hmm. We're empowering people to understand different ways of understanding their own selves and their own being, Mm -hmm. right? So like, um, so I'm I'm sort of in the beginning of this book, but I'm listening to Janet, uh, one of Janet Mock's, uh, Mm. yeah, Audible books. And she talks about like how important it was for her 
uh, when she was transitioning to be rooted in like her native Hawaiianness, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, like her transitioning wasn't anything, you know, it wasn't anything um, new or surprising, you know, like in the in the Hawaiian context, because mm-hmm. indigenous cultures have yes. so many ways of understanding gender and yes. sexuality and yes. fluidity that like it became home for her. Mm-hmm. But she also recognized that, you know, like having that as a base was a privilege that she had, mm-hmm. you know, and there are a lot of kids who I think are transitioning or like are just trying to make sense of their lives and they don't have something like that. Like you don't Mm -hmm. have to be of that culture, Mm -hmm. but you, I think that there's something refreshing and and empowering and knowing that in other cultures, there's different ways of understanding uh, being. Right. Right. And I feel like when people know that it makes like the kid who doesn't feel comfortable in their body it makes Mm -hmm. that kid know like okay this is i feel discomfort but it's normal because there's an example right and not even like a contemporary example like there's you know a bona fide like cultural ancestral example of like what it means to to be the person that i know that i am Mm -hmm. right so yeah and that's that's why like reparations has to be systematic right right it has to include a reinvestment in communities yes yeah yeah or else everything's just going to continue like in terms of like the like policing and prison industrial complex military industrial complex and and land grabs and like yeah in san francisco it's still happening here yeah yeah you know reparations has to be this um action more of an action than yeah it has to be more action and i think that we have to not be afraid of like radical change yes. we have to not be afraid of the word radical we mm-hmm. have to not be afraid of the word revolutionary yeah right? I, I think that also just goes into like miseducation and how there's been just like red baiting and fear of like how now even in the u.s like even basic democratic socialism which in my opinion, isn't very far left. It's yeah. like just the basic needs of people. Like somehow that's being seen as really far. Like everything's moved so far to the right in this country. Mm-hmm. And in, in the time I've been alive, certainly. Yeah. That it's things need to be, there's definitely needs to be that pushback. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like, I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, like, so for example, certain um, democratic socialist candidates, like they get, uh, they get criticized for like having some radical agenda, blah, blah, blah. And that's, it actually has nothing to do with like a radical agenda. I don't think healthcare for all is radical. Nope. I think that that's like, that's to be like the basic thing that we have. Yeah. I think what it is, is like people who see that as radical, what they're really saying is I want to control. Mm. I want to determine who's going to get healthcare. I want to determine who's going to get into certain schools. I want to determine, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because that person or those groups or that system still feels that society needs to operate on these ideas of the haves and the have nots. Mm -hmm. And so this is the the tension um, that's ultimately going to occur as we continue to talk about reparations because reparations requires a radical transformation of U.S. society as mm-hmm. we know it. Mm-hmm. And anytime you have a radical transformation, you're going to go through the tough times. Yes. But to me, those tough times are always going to be worth it because there's like, I, I don't think there's going to be utopia on the other side, mm-hmm. but I think there's going to be a better world on that other side. Yeah. But too many people are invested in like the status quo. Right, right. 
And I think a lot of people are afraid to, to question it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, personally, I'm ready. Like, oh, yes. You, know, like, you me, and I'll, I think millions of people are I think a lot of there. people are ready, A yeah. lot of us are. And I think a lot of people who think that they're not actually, it's the change that they're looking for. Yes. You know, like, I, I think that a lot of people who think that they're conservative, what it is is they just don't have the capacity to imagine what that feels like because right. like i have friends in canada and they're like man you guys have this screwed up version of what canadian healthcare is yeah. you know because yeah everyone's imagining it to be um to be like the dmv and yeah I, so it's kind of a funny story my nephews play hockey mm -hmm. and so there was uh we spent a couple summers in in canada for their um their competitions and mm -hmm. i remember like one of the moms the american moms like her son something happened with his finger so she went to the hospital and like she was talking on and on about oh my god it's such a terrible healthcare system blah 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 we had you know like you know, I'm so glad that we're in the, that we come from the United States. Like, I'll never have to deal with this, you know, Canadian healthcare again. And I was like, what is she talking about? So yeah. I asked her, I said, wait, did they see your son? And she yeah. goes, yeah. And I go, what did you pay? Nothing. And I go, did you wait a long time? She goes, no, but I just think it's, she goes, I just can't rely on these doctors and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, wow. well, these doctors are as educated here in Canada as they are in the United States. Yes, yes. You know, like, the people of this nation didn't even charge you. Mm -hmm. And then she goes, yeah, but, you know, going to a doctor here, it's like, you know, like waiting in the DMV. And I said, wait, but you said you didn't have to wait long, yeah. right? Like, you, you know, she goes, no, but the fact that healthcare is free, like, people are just going to go to the doctor for anything. Oh, I have a bloody nose. I'm going to go to the doctor. And I said, but Ugh. your son had a little bump on his finger. Yeah. And you, like... I don't like translate that for yes. me, you know? And so she got like very flustered, but mm -hmm. I just thought I would love to like walk somewhere yeah. and like, you know, walk into a doctor's office, be seen. I'm not saying that it's like right away, but like, obviously they have a very sufficient healthcare system, right. you know? So there's no reason for us to not adapt that. Definitely. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about in Cuba too, where they have like an overwhelming number of doctors and folks yeah. who are they have so that they can like so doctors can go to other countries and mm -hmm. help folks, and how you know different that is than here where, and just and also just I mean the cost and how many people go into bankruptcy and yeah. in debt every year people who die because they can't afford or choose not to seek health care because they can't afford it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's sad because like if someone you know let's say you have a loved one that died because like they couldn't afford health care, it makes the family feel like it's almost like the judgment is that family didn't love that person mm. enough to go in to go like eyeball deep in debt to keep that person alive. And so the family ends up having to absorb that responsibility. Yeah, and, and it's like guilt, this yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's like this isn't an issue of of guilt. Mm -hmm. This is an issue of like a systemic wrong. Right. Right. So reparations has to address you know, like these types of things. And also for people who are like, well, why do black people and native people get it? And what it's like, you know what, everybody, you know, like when we think about like the possibility of, of like radical systemic change that mm -hmm. can happen, you know, because reparations, like everybody at the end of the day is going to benefit, benefit. Right. You know, like, yeah. So I just, I, I am for reparations, but I'm not for like the single paycheck of course, yeah. form. It has to come in like radical systemic change. change. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, <laughs> well, it seems like a beautiful place to 
to end here. I was wondering if you would like to promote anything that you are working on or any other projects. Um, so, uh, like I said, I'm fairly new at San Jose State, so mm -hmm. I'm actually trying to just sort out my projects. But um, the one thing that I do want to open the door to is for anyone who's listening and you're interested in projects about colorism mm -hmm. and, um, you know, like even if you're like a student, you want to write a paper or something like that and you just need guidance, like feel free to reach out. Um, my email address is joanne.rondilia at sjsu.edu. You can just do a simple Google search and I'm pretty easy to find. Um, I, I'm on Twitter. I'm trying to be active. I'm trying to figure out Twitter language, but, um, my handle on Twitter as well as Instagram is at professor J R O. And yeah, like, you know, feel free to reach out because I, you know, like I remember, you know, doing this type of research on colorism and on beauty and like, you know, in some circles, like it's seen as like not academic and, mm. you know, what have you. My answer has always been like, well, you're just jealous because your stuff is not as sexy as mine, <laughs> you know, but like, um, you know, like there's, there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And yes. like, um, one of the, the publications I worked on, I co-authored a book called is lighter better and this was hmm. it was um it's called is lighter better and it talks about colorism among asian americans and mm. this was published in 2007 mm -hmm. and when um paul and i you know like published it i always when, when i enter like this sort of publishing realm i always think this is not the end all be all book this is just to start the conversation because if people see like oh there's a book that talks about this and someone else is going to pick it up and say oh okay like wow, you can talk about this this way because like my experience is this or I observe this. So maybe I can talk about this, but in this way. And that was what I was hoping, mm -hmm. right? That's what we were both hoping. But since 2007, there hasn't been another study on Asian Americans and colorism. Mm. And so, and I think that again, it's because people wonder like, is this viable? So if you're going through that and you're trying to figure, you know, like you're trying to navigate that like please feel free to to reach out like and again like i said earlier in the show people who are interested in looking at colorism or like and or beauty standards among men um you know the trans community the lgbtq plus community like this is research that needs to be done and sometimes you just need like someone to not just cheer you on but help you know guide you mm -hmm. right like i you know like i will do you know, like I'd love to to be someone who can help you as best as I can. Oh, right you know? on. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. This is fun. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought perhaps we could end on a Ruby Ibarra song. If there are ones yes. in particular that you'd like that we can share here. Um, there's a uh, she has a great song called Roll Call. I think that's a good Roll one. Call. Okay. Yeah. Let's get this up. And I also wanted just to promote an event that's coming up on July uh, 21st for all the listeners out there. And this is Alternatives to Policing for Transformative Justice, uh, which will be hosted by the First Congre Congregational Church of Oakland, and uh, as well as two others. Let's just see who these two other folks are. Um, Oakland Peace Center and Jewish Voice for Peace Bay Area. And this will be happening again on Sunday, July 21st from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. at the First Congregational Church of Oakland, which is located at 2501 Harrison Street. I'll be sharing the event on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. If you'd like to please contribute to Mutiny Radio, you can do so at mutinyradio.fm as well as check out all of our other shows here. If you'd like to support this in particular program, we have a Patreon set up at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. So without further ado, here is Ruby Ibarra's roll call. Joanne, thanks again so much for being here. Thank you. And we'll be back next week. 
Have a great week, everybody. Class, please settle down. We'll continue taking attendance. Now, where were we? Brittany Green. Here. Piper Violet Haydenson. Here. Oh, such a cute name, you cutie. Blake Harper. Here. Misoko Hatsu. Here. Yeah, let's just call you Kimmy H instead. Great. Ruby and Belize Ibarra? Yeah. Javier Joselito Cabal. How many names do you have? You'll be JJ. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Jester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And ten dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off, for, <laughs> it's in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge for the kayaks, you know. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for comedy clubhouse with a k you can download it for free but we'd love to see you every friday 8 to 10 down here at mutiny radio laugh off your tushy and save your life because you know what's better than laughter well it's a cash cock baby Mm Flourish. We find that common thread. <laughs> <laughs>
Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. If you're looking for some delicious late-night food, I suggest you mosey on down to Bender's Bar. Inside, you can find Counter Offer, offering you amazing late-night food and snacks. Try the chicken biscuit. It's like your stomach's in a tasty tornado. They have exceptionally great daily ground sustainable burgers with sides of tater tots, grilled asparagus, and delicious zucchini. And creamy, delicious mac and cheese. You like tacos? Then get them. And from the specials, very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun. What are those crazy potheads going to come up with next? Go to the counter offer inside of Blender's Bar at 800 South Van Ness Avenue, San Francisco. It's located between 19th Street and 20th Street in the Mission District. Open seven nights a week from 5 to 10 p.m. or later. Counter offer, son! Yeah. 
Welcome. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5. Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, Punk Rock and Schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Bender's is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Bender's Bar and Grill. This is Tuchel Matters with Mutiny Radio. Big up to the number one station, the ruling nation. Give it to me every time. Ah! Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's joke workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> and welcoming open mic, where comedians can get substantial mic time for the mere price of a spot of tea and crumpets. Comedians who remain after their initial sets are invited to perform feats of improvisation and ingenuity in the famous lightning round games, which are guaranteed to delight and entertain. Ah, thinking of these bright young comedians with so much potential and so many drug problems makes me as giddy as a schoolgirl. I haven't had so much fun and giggles since my non-trinary youth at Bumble's Warning School in East Brackenshire, where I danced with Hugh Grant, helped Jason Statham steal an antique shotgun, and took nude photos of Prince Harry, who I must mention was not named appropriately. Sign up in person for your own comedic adventures at 7.30pm, or pre-sign with the host by sending a direct message via social media. If you can't make it out to that den of iniquity known as MutinyRadio.fm, listen in live from home, or download the podcast on Apple iTunes under Friends of Mutiny. A smashing time will be had by all. Until next Saturday night at 8 p.m. Cheerio, darlings. Flat Black Plastic. It's special Tuesday afternoon version. It's going to be subbed in on Saturday, so who knows what's going to happen? Whether you know. From the weed. In a country garden, a lovely rose looked down upon a common weed and said, You are an unwelcome guest, economically useless and unsightly of appearance. 
The devil must love weeds. He made so many of them. The unwelcome guest looked up at the rose and said, Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds, and one supposes that goes for roses. My name is Dorothy Perkins, the rose said haughtily. What are you, a beetle weed, a bladder weed, a beggar weed? The names of weeds are ugly. And Dorothy shuddered slightly, but lost none of her pretty petals. Bender's Barn Grill. Hi, welcome to My Limited View. I am your host, Sergio Novoa. And I'm your co-host, Vanessa Wilkins. Join us every Tuesday from 12 to 2 at mutinyradio.fm as we share stories, our personal stories. And struggles and challenges. And we'll also have guests come in and share their stories. And hopefully through all this, we can expand our view. Or your view. Yes, and there'll be plenty of dick jokes, so don't worry. It's not always going to be heavy. Yeah, I might even share black hair tips. Black hair tips, don't know <laughs> anything about it, sorry. All on my limited view. Yes, every Tuesday from 12 to 2. Uh, oh, you can if you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah, and Google Play. And Stitcher. iTunes. Oh, you already said T- that. Tune in radio. Uh, Stitcher, you said that. Spotify. Oh, my God, there's just so many. And Overcast. Um, yes, you can also find us on social media, M as in Mary, L as in Larry, P as in Peter, podcast, MOV podcast is our handle. Until next time, I hope you're enjoying your view. Yes. Bye. Bye. That kind of sucked balls. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5, I 